Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hey, City Beautiful family, and welcome to Easter Sunday uh, 2020. It is so good uh, to have you here digitally, whatever this is that we're doing, this is still new, but uh, I'm so excited to be here with you today. Uh, The Lord has given me a really wonderful word for us uh, this morning that I think really ties in with this theme of resurrection, especially what we're going through right now. But I wanted to say just first of all, on a pastoral note, you know, um, whenever uh, there's a crisis like this that arises, uh, I know for myself, and I think this is true for other pastors, we feel this pressure of like, how am I going to be there for everybody and how am I going to carry the burden of everybody's trials and tribulations? You know, I definitely experienced this after um, the, the pulse shooting a couple of years ago here in our own city. And um, I definitely felt that this go around. This is a new unprecedented territory for most of us. And of course, I kind of filter it through my vocation. Um, I just wanted to say, I have been so amazed and gratified to watch over the past few weeks how you, uh, our family, City Beautiful Church, you have taken care of each other. You're checking in with one another. You're encouraging each other. You're sharing words from the Lord. You're giving permission to be vulnerable. I've heard of, um, you know, Stephanie and Katie taking cookies over to Ricardo's house and leaving them at a safe distance for him. Um, for others, uh, you know, driving by the Wimmer's house and wishing Clem a happy sixth birthday. And um, for me, as as a pastor, as kind of a spiritual father, it um, it fills me with pride um, to say you know, it is not my job uh, to take care of people. It's Jesus's job, and Jesus chooses to do that through his body, through his people, which is you. And so I want to encourage all of you as you're continuing on in this uncertain season that we're in to keep the course, to check in with one another, encourage each other, constantly be before the Lord asking him to give you revelation that you can pass along to our family to keep us on the path. And I really believe that if we can do that, we're going to come through the other side of this season stronger than ever before because we've met him, um, we have seen his face, and we've been transformed by that. And of course, if you know me, you know that that's going to be the majority of what uh, my message is about today. So, um, Um, To begin, let's uh, start with the traditional Easter declaration. Alleluia, he is risen. All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we stand here on the cusp of another uh, new season in the church, the Easter season, in which we celebrate resurrection and new life, where we see your world, your kingdom, kind of rising up in the midst of the old one. And Lord, we are the people who have seen the signs, who know what's really going on behind the scenes And we've latched on to your kingdom for the ride, wherever it may take us. 
So God, we, uh, we are here open before you in this moment with our hands open and our hearts open to receive whatever truth you have in store for each one of us. God, I pray that you would make it personal to us today uh, because we all need those signs of resurrection uh, to awaken our hearts to the reality of who it is that walks alongside of us in this life. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so here's kind of the, my, my main thesis for this Easter Sunday. Uh, God does not save the world by returning things to normal. He births new ones in the midst of the old. And we call this resurrection. I've been thinking about this a lot recently as I've been tuning into the news and, and listening to reporters and members of the administration and health professionals all talking about when do we get to return to normal? Uh, when does this season pass and everything can go back to the way it was? And as I've been in prayer, and as of course we've been through this series of really immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus through the gospel of Luke, I've recognized that in actuality, God never returns things to normal. He doesn't take us back to the way things were before there was crisis or suffering or trial or tribulation. Because our God is not a God of the status quo. He wants to get everything back to the way it was, our God is a God of resurrection, which means that there is life, and yes, there is death, but out of that death becomes new life. And I love that even in the Easter story in Luke, this is how we see things beginning. And I, what I just want to do is very briefly tell the beginning of Luke chapter 24, where Jesus or where Luke is writing about um, the resurrection. And then there's a fascinating story that is, I think, the reason that Luke kind of sets us up in this chapter to understand what resurrection really looks like for those of us who follow Jesus. So the first line in Luke 24 says this, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And I, there's a symbol there to say, on the first day of the week, whenever we see that kind of, uh, of language in the New Testament, we know that it's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the seven days of God's creation, that on the seventh day, God rested. And then whenever we see the first day of the new week, we know it's already symbolically time for God to get back to work that God is doing something. It's not like it was last week. God is doing something again in this new week. And so these women, they go to take the spices um, to embalm the body of Jesus. But when they get there, the, the stone over the, 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 the entryway to the tomb has been rolled away and they enter in and they see there is no body. And when they come back out, there's these two men dressed in white. The other gospels say that these are angels who tell them that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he's no longer here. And so they rush back to where the disciples, the original 11, are kind of sitting and waiting and processing and mourning, and they tell them the story. And it's fascinating that it says initially that to the disciples, their words were nonsense. But it is Peter who listens to the words of the women and runs to find the empty tomb for himself. And I think there's two things that are really fascinating here. Number one, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? When Jesus is raised from the dead, it means that he is vindicated in his resurrection, which means Jesus is who he said he was. 
that Jesus is who God determined he was to be as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. That when we wrestle with the idea of the resurrection of Jesus, it forces us to admit that Jesus is not merely an inspirational teacher or even just a revolutionary leader, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made through his people Israel. And the second thing that I want to point out is that when these women come to the disciples, they believe that it's nonsense. They don't believe them. They say it's idle talk. And this was the old way of thinking, as I mentioned several weeks ago in my sermon about the persistent widow. A woman's testimony is not credible in the first century. Um, so it's very normal in the old way of thinking that these women would come to give testimony of what they've witnessed to, but the disciples don't believe them. But Peter, he chooses to hear their words and to go and to seek out the risen Jesus. And this shows that things are changing. There's a new world. There's a new reality being birthed in the midst of the old one. And so as we're encountering the stories of Jesus uh, after his resurrection and then the church that begins to form around the risen, risen Jesus, that's the question that we're asking. What are the things that are changing in the kingdom, in God's new reality that are not like the old? And how do we immerse ourselves in those kingdom ways so that we can continually live into the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to? And so that brings us to this story, which is called The Road to Emmaus. And this is a story about two travelers that are leaving the city of Jerusalem, and they're heading back to a town called Emmaus that's not too, too far away from the city. Um, we know that one of them, his name is Cleopas, and we can kind of infer from one of the later chapters in the Gospel of John that it's probably his wife Mary that's joining him. So there's this young married couple, and they're leaving the city of Jerusalem after all the events of the past. Passover festival and of, of Jesus' trial and his condemnation and then his execution. And the, the, the question that really kind of rises when we read this story is, what do you do when things don't go as expected? And this is a fascinating story for us to be looking at this Easter in 2020, because we've gotten to that point where 2019 is the good old days. Now, just pause and think about that for a second. How many of us came December 31st, 2019, and that clock changed, and we said, hallelujah, the, the old has passed away, there is new, there's hope, there's goodness, and then this. I don't think this was on any of our radars. This was not what we expected. And so we're set up in a really beautiful way to be able to engage uh, with the story of Cleopas and his wife, Mary, as they're leaving the city of Jerusalem and they're heading to this town called Emmaus. So I'm going to read the first portion of the story, talk about what's going on possibly in their heart and what we can learn from that. And then we're going to look at Jesus's response to them, which is Jesus's response to us. This is Luke 24, verses 13 to 24. Now, that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but at him they did not see. And so I think the, the main thing that we can understand here is that on our road to Emmaus experience, we must hand our confusion and disappointment to the stranger alongside of us. Cleopas and Mary are leaving behind the pain of the Passover week. Not only had they entered into the city as Jews to celebrate the Passover feast, but as followers of Jesus, it's very likely that they may have been part of that group that just a week earlier on Palm Sunday had entered in with singing and praise, Hosanna in the highest. That they had borne witness to all of these prophetic acts that Jesus was enacting as he's kind of confronting the powers and the principalities of the day. Perhaps they were witness to the Passover feast when Jesus takes the bread and the wine and he creates new symbols out of the old. Maybe even Cleopas was present in the garden when Jesus is arrested and taken away for trial. And almost certainly they were there to witness the crucifixion of their Messiah. And so they're leaving the city of Jerusalem to go back perhaps to where they came from with a profound confusion and disappointment because this is not the way that they thought things were going to turn out. They were expecting a new revolution, one in which God's chosen king would take the throne and would reestablish Israel and conquer evil and instead their leader has been killed. I wonder if you ever feel that way where you have this idea of how things are supposed to work. And if you're a Christian, you have this expectation, this is how God's going to move in my life and the, and the life of those people that I love. And then you have that experience, that Good Friday experience, where everything falls apart, all of your hope seems to slip through your fingers, and you come to this recognition, this isn't the way that it was supposed to be. I think perhaps like Cleopas and Mary, when we've each experienced those moments in our lives, there is that temptation for us to just head back to where we came from, which is to say, we're gonna go back to what was familiar before we got our hopes up. We wanna go back to normal, to the status quo. But I think what we recognize in this story, if we put ourselves in the place of Cleopas and Mary, is that when we walk through those moments of disillusionment in our faith, when we hit a wall in our lives, that we may not recognize the Jesus who is actually standing in our midst because we're expecting Jesus as we thought we were before we encountered that, that thing that caused us disillusion. And a lot of times we throw our arms up and we say, God, where are you? Where were you? Why didn't this thing turn out? Why didn't you come through for me? But our inability to recognize the stranger walking alongside of us may have more to do with our own limited perspective and our small ideas of God than it does about his constant presence to us. 
You know, as I've walked this journey in my own life and as I've walked it through with friends and family and people in this community and we've hit these walls in our faith, I've recognized rarely is it merely an intellectual exercise where at one point we just decided to sit down and to do the forensic analysis and we decided that God, Jesus, the Christian faith, none of it is actually true. But in reality, the walls that we encounter in our life are almost always a result of unprocessed trauma, unprocessed emotional pain that we do not have the tools to encounter in our faith. And so instead we divert it and we make it an intellectual exercise. That if I can run this through logic and my five senses and I can kind of deconstruct and pick apart all of these things that I was to believe because they were going to make sense of the problems in my life, then maybe I can preserve myself and I can find my way forward. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If we take the, the painful experiences of my, our lives and we only try to work them out through our intellect, through logic and reason, we find that our awareness of realities beyond ourselves continually shrink and we're left with a smaller and smaller view of the world because it's not about our intellectual ascent. It's about unprocessed pain in our heart. The reality is that these moments are going to happen to you several times in your life. You're not going to hit just one single wall where there's confusion and disappointment and disillusionment and then God's going to bring it through you and everything is going to be great for the next 70 years. No. The reality is there is the pain and suffering of life, whether it's a divorce or a sudden death or a pandemic or whatever it might be that causes you to question everything that you thought you knew about God, about the universe, and about yourself and your own capacities. But the other thing I've not recognized about these moments when we hit a wall is that they are there for God to do something in us, to purge us of perspectives of who he is that end up holding us back from knowing him for who he really is. You know, I think it was John Calvin who said that humanity are little idol factories. We have this uh, nasty habit of taking a picture of God that's true and kind of codifying it and branding it and making it more small and manageable so that we can continue to control it. And then before long, the idols that we've made out of who God is don't fit the bill. They don't seem to work anymore. And these often become the moments where we want to abandon God or we want to abandon our faith altogether and, and, and sail for safer shores that we find in materialism and rationality. But these moments when we hit a wall in our lives, when we experience profound loss or confusion or disillusionment or disappointment are meant for purging us of those idols. Our, our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of the world around us, the, the neat little packages that we've been handed that help to explain why everything is begin to fall apart. 
I've seen so many Christians in this season wrestling with this idea of where does, where does sickness come from? Where does a pandemic come from? Do we blame it on God? Do we blame it on humanity? Where, how do we do the forensic analysis to discover where this comes from and how it all fits and what it means for God to be in control? And did God ordain this? Or how are we going to get through this? And it becomes reductive. And it's us grasping at things in order to maintain our sense of control of the universe. And it's not really about having true faith in who God is and what he's doing. And so we find ourselves like Cleopas and Mary, walking away from the event, profoundly disappointed that things didn't turn out the way we did. But we need to have the audacity to recognize that there is a stranger walking alongside of us who wants to listen to us tell our stories, to process our feelings, to work out all of our disappointment and confusion and who we thought Jesus might be. Because it's in those moments that Jesus appears to us in ways that maybe we wouldn't think that he would. This is the mystery of the resurrected Jesus, that he's the same Jesus, but somehow different. He's the same Jesus, but as the resurrected Jesus, even his own disciples don't necessarily recognize him. And is this not the mystery that you and I so often live in? And so I want us just to take a moment here, just a minute or two, and I want you to just kind of prayerfully consider, when have I experienced profound confusion and disappointment that my faith couldn't explain away? When have I hit those walls in my life where all of my neat, tidy packages of who God is supposed to be and how I'm supposed to behave haven't served me well. So just take a minute and just close your eyes and let's just prayerfully reflect on our own stories. I'll give you two minutes. Maybe you're very early in your journey with Jesus and 
you haven't experienced that moment yet. And, and, and I don't prescribe it. I don't look down upon you right now. I actually commend you for it. And so you have an opportunity to recognize this is actually a normal part of faith. But for many of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know all too well that feeling when things don't work the way that they're supposed to. But again, we see in the story of Cleopas and Mary a willingness to open up and to share their disillusionment, to share their story and their experiences with the stranger that walks alongside of them. And then it comes time for Jesus. How does Jesus minister to their confusion and disappointment? And we're going to pick up the story again in verse 25 and see how Jesus responds to them. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And so it is the resurrected Jesus walking alongside of us that enlivens our hearts to receive resurrection life in his word and at his table. It's not the Jesus simply of the stories, the Jesus of the past, the inspiring teacher, the inspiring revolutionary uh, leader. It is the resurrected living Jesus here and now that enlivens our hearts to receive the resurrection life. And what more beautiful day to reflect on this than Easter Sunday. And so first, what is it about the word? We see Jesus here saying, you need to recognize that through all through scripture has been speaking of me, has been speaking of the Messiah, that I am the fulfillment of God's promises to come and to rescue the world and to gather together a new people in this kingdom, this new reality of what God is doing that might save all of creation. And so it says that beginning with Moses, which is to say the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he talks them through all of scripture, all the way through the Latter-day Prophets to show that everything pointed to him. The whole story points to Jesus. The whole story. Every single bit of scripture points to Jesus as the best demonstration of what God is like. I'm reminded even of the words in Hebrews chapter one. This is the way that the writer begins her letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he had, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I think this is absolutely revolutionary for us. Because here's what's happened so often. This is the way that we've been trained to do the Bible, is we have something like this. Here's this disease, this epidemic, and so we go to the glossary in the Bible, and we just look up in the back, okay, what does it say about disease? And then we pull out all of the Bible verses that are in there about disease, and then we try to form some sort of a theology to explain what's happening. Well, obviously, this is what God is doing, and obviously, this is how he's choosing us, and then we just conveniently insert ourselves into the place of Israel or whomever it is is in the story and we kind of assemble this hodgepodge because we treat the Bible as if it's just a handbook for life. It's a manual where we're just supposed to look for the code in order to tell us what to do or how to explain things, how to keep control of the narrative so that we're okay at the end of the day. But when we flatten the text like this, where every verse weighs just about the same as every other verse, and this little line from Leviticus is the same thing as this line from 2 Corinthians or whatever, we make the Bible do things it wasn't meant to do. Because the Bible is not the handbook for life. The Bible is not meant to be used as a dictionary or a glossary to just tell you what to do or how to explain things line by line that you might encounter in your life. The Bible has a singular purpose, which is to point us to Jesus. And the scriptures are infallible if we allow them to do what they are there to do. When we flatten the text, we miss Jesus speaking to us from every page. And we end up with some very horrible theology but Jesus tells the whole story in a way to enliven Cleopas and Mary to recognize, oh my goodness, this is the way that God chose to act through his Messiah. And I love that line. Did not our, when he was speaking to us and he was opening up the scripture, did not our hearts burn within us? Was there not something in us that just awoke on the, on the primordial level and said, yes, yes, this is it. This is the way that God chooses to act. This is the Jesus that I have somehow always known but didn't recognize. There was an openness to the living Jesus in being immersed in the story of God in the scriptures. But it only prepared them to actually see him in their midst. Knowing the Bible, reading the Bible is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. And just as we so often flatten the text of the Bible to just have it give us some helpful pointers on how to live our lives or explain difficult situations, we can actually have the Bible as a replacement for intimate relationship with Jesus. And this is why we need the table. Because it wasn't until Jesus had told him the story and then sat down with them at the table and he took bread and he broke it open in front of them that they, their eyes were opened and they were able to see who it was that sat in their midst. Because that was the seat of intimacy. That is God saying, come, sit at my table, dine with me. 
that the bread and the wine, they recognize for us, this is God broken open for us. God coming alongside of us in life and in the midst of suffering, giving us new life. Do you realize that Cleopas and Mary, part of their idolatry was possibly Jesus was a means to an end. They wanted to see this revolution. They wanted to see this new reality happen. And Jesus was the way that was going to happen. And it was only through walking through the disillusionment and disappointment of things not going the way they thought that they were actually able to meet the risen Jesus. That Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is not the way that we have our dreams fulfilled. Jesus is his own reward. It's about him. It's about knowing him. And we can take even our best intentions as Christians and we can set them up on a pedestal that Jesus is merely the means to an end. But it's only when we walk through the disappointment and the disillusionment of those idols falling down that we're actually prepared to have our eyes opened to the seat of intimacy. Friends, we can't just read about Jesus. We need to sit at the table with him. We need to look him in his eye. We need to hear him call us by our true names. And we need to allow him to give us sustenance in the very midst of our confusion and our disillusionment and our disappointment. That's what this day's about. I think it's about all of these agendas that we've had falling down around us. All these things that maybe we thought were God, maybe we thought were Jesus, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we're just other things that we were looking for and we're using Jesus as a way to get the things that we wanted. All of that's beginning to collapse around us. And we're recognizing he is his own reward. To know him is the highest and greatest good of our lives. And what this story does for me in the midst of my own confusion and disillusionment, that this is not the way that I thought my life was going to be. It's to recognize that I can only encounter him through participation in prayer, in speaking out to him in intimate detail, my confusion, my disillusionment, how I thought things were going to go, through scripture, through allowing myself to be immersed in the story of God as God tells it to me to open my, my eyes, to prepare me to see him in my midst and through sacrament, through action, through participation in my own faith, that all of these things together are the way for me to discover Jesus as he truly is, not in the way that I've imagined him. These times of confusion can become the moments where you and I are humbled, where we let go of our controlling narratives and we become more willing to live in the mystery of the risen Jesus. Because what is true of the risen Jesus will one day become true of all of us. But in the meantime, mature Christians anticipate signs of resurrection everywhere 
the new being birthed from the old. And so friends, we come to the table. And as I told you through these extraordinary circumstances, whatever you put on the table, we're going to call the blessed sacrament, the Eucharist, the gifts of God. I have a really nice sourdough boule and a Pinot Noir, but maybe you have a tortilla and a glass of water. I don't know what you might have, but we're going to call it the Eucharist, the gift. But we come to the table in order to know him, to know Jesus in the breaking of the bread. That this ancient symbol is for us an affirmation of the stranger that is alongside of us on the journey who will never leave us nor forsake us even in the moments when we don't recognize him because he's not fulfilling the agenda the way that we thought he would. And we come to this table and we participate in communion. We take the bread and the cup into ourselves as a promise of resurrection and renewal. And we look for the signs now in anticipation of its full coming. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to bless uh, these elements and we're going to participate in communion wherever we are together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Cleopas and Mary because it is the story of all of us. That we hit these walls in our faith where things don't work out the way that we thought they would be. But Lord, instead of those being the moments where we abandon you, where we abandon our faith, maybe the moments where we are opened up to experience the new, the risen, the resurrected Jesus walking alongside of us, teaching us, listening to our pain, encouraging us to keep going and then finally sitting at the table and breaking himself open for us as a symbol that he is our sustenance. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless these elements, this bread and this cup, that for us they would be these living sacred symbols of everything that we have promised to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, God, for this moment. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. God bless our community. And may we celebrate the resurrection today. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.